0: Well, hello there. (laughs) So I believe this morning we have established that I do not drive as fast as Dick Wing. (laughs) Well, good morning. I'm sorry that we had to juggle with me getting here from uh, North Campus. So the reading today is from the Book of Acts. Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how religious you are, extremely religious in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, God who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is God served by human hands, as though God needed anything, since God's own self gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, God made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth, and God allotted the times of their existence and made the boundaries of the places where they would live, so they would search for God and perhaps grope for God and find God. Though indeed, God is not far from us. For in God we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. A number of years ago, we had a young visitor to the church. She was about eight years old. Her grandmother brought her, and she was a really precocious child. She was introduced to me, and she began peppering me with questions about God and Jesus and heaven, and you name it, what happened to the dinosaurs, and what happened to Jesus, and you know, we covered the whole deal. And uh, as I was talking, uh, I, mi- I mistakenly said he when I was talking about God. And I said, you know, I shouldn't have said he. We try not to use he for God, because we really don't know that God's a man or a woman, and God's probably all that mixed into one, And I'm talking and she's getting a little blurry, looking at me. And uh, after a while, she let out this big sigh and uh, put her hand on her hip and said, well, I think God is still a man. And I said, oh, why do you think that? And you know that look that children give you, that look that's saying, you are the dumbest human on earth? She gave me that look, and she said, of course God is a man. Have you seen the pictures of him? (laughs) This is not a joke. This happened to me in Brownlee Hall, and you know what? I really couldn't argue with her. There was no unknown God for this little girl. She'd seen pictures of him. In today's passage, Uh, Paul is talking to the cultured elites. And when I say that, I find I lift my nose a little bit. These were the intelligentsia, the very educated, probably very wealthy also people in Athens. And uh, they were all gathered together to listen. They were on the Areopagus, which is like a big rock thing in Athens, overlooking Athens. And uh, it was where they held court, literally the Court of Justice and also where they did all kinds of debating and talking and they talked about things that were very intellectual and very philosophical and this was all very high-minded kind of conversation that took place here. Actually, this kind of debate was their chief pastime. Like today, we might do it at Stoff's or at uh, Starbucks, but they were on this rock outcropping overlooking Athens. So in this environment of Greeks, that we would also call pagans, Uh, Paul was way out of his community. His community would have been um, uh, Rome. His community would have been, I'm using community in a very broad term, would have been the Jewish community. And then it would have been very early Christians after that. And none of those categories were found in the Areopagus on this day. Uh, These were Greeks who worshipped a whole bunch of gods. So they worshipped Zeus, the god of the sky, and Hera, the goddess of marriage and family. Poseidon, the god of the sea. I'm sure you all saw the Poseidon adventure way back. Athena, goddess of war, wisdom, and useful things. I don't know what the useful things were. I never really found out. In talking to the people of Athens, Paul seems to have a little bit of a strategy here. He seems to be trying not to insult them. And honestly, for Paul, that was kind of unusual because he wasn't the most tactful guy in the Bible. He actually is kind of flattering them. I see how religious you are. I see how devoted you are. I see the altars you've built. And then he says, for in God we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we too are God's offspring. As it turns out, he's quoting poetry here that predated Christ by hundreds of years, four or 500 years. There was an original saying that said, in Zeus we live and move and have our being. So, This wasn't Christian stuff, not yet. It became part of the Christian lexicon. He's speaking their language. He's trying to draw them into his message. He's also demonstrating uh, respect for the views of others and understanding that here are some different faith traditions that may be open to what I have to say. Theologian William Loder writes about this passage. He says, the story is about removing barriers Barriers constructed by religion itself. It is saying that the whole world is God's creation, the playground of the spirit. The whole world is the object of God's love, the love incarnate in Jesus Christ. Every attempt, this is what Loder says, every attempt by human beings to capture God in images, in a book, in a temple, in a people, in a culture, in a religious experience or in an institution, is actually a denial of the spirit. It is another desperate bid born of fear to define the unknown, the unpredictable, the unmanageable future that God promises us. The Greeks honor this unknown God. They do not recognize the one God of Judaism and later Christianity, what we call monotheism. They do not know this one God but they honor this God anyway. It's kind of a at the same time, yes and no, it opens up the conversation. It makes conversation about this possible. Now, that's the positive read of it. The cynical read is that the um, Greeks, when they're altar to the unknown god, were just covering their bases, hedging their bets. It's like they were sort of saying, okay, there might be one we forgot, but we'll build an altar anyway, just to be sure. They had altars to other those, all those other gods, sun, moon, rain, sky, peace, war, you name it. But in this case, they had this altar to the unknown God because they didn't want to leave anything to chance. When you think about it, to some degree, maybe to a large degree, we all worship an unknown God. Those of us who worship one God, the God of all times and places, we believe we know some stuff about God. Some of us have even seen pictures of God. In the text, Paul lays out everything that he knows about God. God is the creator of all things, the cosmos. In preparing to preach today, uh, for some reason, I Googled how big is the cosmos because I got to thinking, wow, if God is the God of all the cosmos, and now with what we know, with contemporary science, what does that mean? Here's what I found it would seem the visible universe is contained to a radius of 14 billion light-years. But we know that photons in the cosmic microwave background have traveled some 45 billion light-years to reach Earth, because the universe is also expanding. The most distant visible objects are actually further than 14 billion light-years, giving the universe an apparent diameter of at least 90 billion light-years. The cosmos is really, really big. (laughs) And so the god of the cosmos must also be really, really big. And then Paul says, God is not just the creator of the cosmos, but the shaper and the giver and the sustainer of all existence. So God never really has a final product. God is still shaping and molding us and the creation we share. In God we live and move and have our being. Isn't that beautiful? Mm Mm-hmm. The struggle for us today is we had to live through this week. We had to see news reports about a suicide bomber who killed 22 people, most of them very young, in Manchester, England. Then there was a car bombing in Afghanistan. Then a man spews hateful, hateful words toward a couple of women on a train in Portland. Two people tried to make him stop. They were heroes. They died. And a bus full of Coptic Christians in Egypt is bombed by terrorists. So Christians, Muslims, young music lovers, heroes, soldiers, All of these people died in one week. You could be forgiven for wondering what on earth God is up to. Maybe we do worship an unknown God, a God that just doesn't make any sense. I typed that sentence into my computer, a God that doesn't make any sense, and then I didn't know where to go and you know that cursor is blinking, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, I I don't know where to go from here. And then it occurred to me that what I know about God is that that cursor is not going to blink forever, that God does have an end to the story that's not violent, that's not whatever struggle we know today. The story does not end with the worst that human beings can do to each other. And suddenly that blinking cursor, you may want to get yours blinking on your computer as a spiritual practice. Suddenly that blinking cursor said to me, wait a minute, I'm God and I'm not finished. You know, it's the mantra of the United Church of Christ. God is still speaking. God is still shaping and molding and perfecting creation. You know, this is the kind of week where we can relate to what the text says, that sometimes we grope for God. There's no sexual connotation here. That's not what the word means. The Greek is lafao. and that refers to fumbling blindly, you know, you don't have your glasses on yet and you're trying to figure out what time it is on the alarm clock, that kind of fumbling, reaching around, fumbling, that's groping. That's the blind fumbling that this text is referring to when it talks about groping for God. But, you know, here's some good news. When you're groping for God, when you're fumbling for God, when you feel like you can't see your way out, you will oftentimes find God in the very best of us. We saw some evidence of that this week at the Living Faith Awards, awards given to uh, lay people in the Columbus area who have done extraordinary things. One of the award recipients was Lamar Graham, who's director of the Heart to Heart Food Pantry at our church. Uh, Lamar, food is just the very beginning of what Lamar does and he seems to, every day he comes into work, he seems to transform somebody's life. One of the other people called out as extraordinary was Judge Paul Herbert. Judge Herbert was a prosecutor and then a judge. And he experienced a sense of hopelessness. He really kind of hit on a spiritual crisis when he saw the same people coming before him as a judge over and over and over again, particularly women. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one Christmas, he was listening to his very favorite Christmas carol Oh Holy Night. Everybody in here knows it, I'm sure. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. Ron Jenkins, say nothing. (laughs) I'm sorry, I kind of put you on the spot there. Uh, So you know the song, but Herbert was caught by the lyrics. The world was trapped until Christ appeared, and the soul felt its worth. The soul felt its worth. He said one Christmas, he read those words, he sang them, and everything shifted for him. Honestly, I hadn't even thought about those words in that song. I don't know that I ever thought about them. What if, Judge Herbert wondered, what if I take all the power and authority and influence that I have as a judge and use that to help souls feel their worth. What would that look like? And what came out of that wondering was honestly nothing short of miraculous. Many of the people who came to Judge Herbert's court, still come to his court today, are women who are charged with the misdemeanor of solicitation, prostitution, human trafficking, These women were almost certainly abused, suffered from addictions, multiple addictions. They had become trapped in this vicious, life-crushing cycle. And so Judge Herbert founded what he calls the Catch Program. It's Catch Court. And the idea is to catch women when they've been charged with this misdemeanor of solicitation and really take a hard look at all the things that have led them to this point and to help them turn their lives around. And I got news for you, this is not This is not a soft-touch deal. This is a tough program, and a lot of women don't graduate from it. There's a lot of accountability required of them, but it also creates this safe space to start addressing the addictions and the other issues that have brought them to this place, and it is miraculous in the successes it experiences. Judge Herbert was absolutely convinced that if these women, if these souls could feel their worth, their lives would be changed, and he was right. The prayer at the Living Faith Awards began with these words to address God, dear and beloved stranger. Those are just different words for an unknown God. Dear and beloved stranger, the prayer continued, please eat with us, share this walk with us, Please rest with us in this warm house so that we may come to know each other." And that language, come to know each other, is familiar to anyone who's worked a 12-step program because the program says we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could save us. So if the God is still unknown to you today, you can come to believe. You can come to know. And that's the heart of the text for today, that we can come to know each other. Paul doesn't shame anybody in Athens. He doesn't call them heretics. He doesn't do any name calling or anything like that. He speaks to the parts of them that are searching and seeking God. He understands that the promise of Easter is real. The promise of resurrection is real and possible. And he understands that many different people with many different ways of believing all hold some part of the truth about God, the one in whom we live and have our being, the one who loves us unconditionally. There is a saying from the Islamic holy scriptures that when we walk toward God, God runs toward us. God was running toward the people of Athens and God is running toward you and me too today, all of us. I'm currently reading a book called Let God Be God. In my mind's eye, there's a little comma at the end. Let God be God, Deborah. Doesn't have to be you. I think the most important message of the whole book is the title, Let God Be God. God may be known to you as a tender, loving caretaker. God may be known to you as the guy you've seen in the pictures. God may be known to you as an unknown, a sacred mystery, a sometimes frustrating mystery. The author of this book, Let God Be God, is a Canadian minister named Matthew Brough. And he says this, it is not about what you should do. Don't create a be-better-at-trusting-God project for yourself. Instead, know that God is doing something in you and with you. Know that God is up to something in this world and will, in the end, overcome all the pain and the suffering and the evil. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Remember that one? And then Reverend Bro says, wait. Wait for what's next from our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our provider, our protector. Wait for the one who loves you more than you can imagine. So, for now, let God be God. Rest in the assurance that we are all God's offspring, and that is a good, safe, whole, and holy place to rest. Amen.